Well, go ahead and grab a seat. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And you're welcome to grab your notes out of your handout. You'll see we are continuing in a series on Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament. I know many, many of you, hundreds of you actually are reading through the book of Acts this July. And uh, so excited about that. If you have not started, go ahead and jump in. And what you'll find as you read through the book of Acts, a couple of themes just predominantly that we want to make sure really get uh, driven home. And if you're filling in the blanks, the first one, just right off the bat, is this that Acts is the story of the church powered by the Spirit of God. It's the story of the first church in the first century, totally and completely empowered, driven, moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And and so that's beautiful. I I know you'll see that as you read through the book of Acts. But the second truth that, that we're covering in our series is this, that the power source of the church in Acts is the power source of the church today. In other words, it's not like what happened in the first century was, was different or other, was, was some kind of an extra power or extra Holy Spirit season, and then we're in the, the lesser diminished days kind of a thing. It is that what you see in the book of Acts and the way God's Spirit moves, the way God's love moves through the first century church, that is exactly the way that God moves today, through His people, through His family, through His church. So we're very, very excited about that. In fact, if you want to see like a a quick example of that, the the thing that I can point to this last week was our Kid Town Camp. It was so amazing to be a part of Kid Town Camp. Hundreds of hundreds of kindergartners through fifth graders. I had the privilege and the honor of being a fifth grade teacher this week. Oh yeah. Oh, it was was pretty incredible. Uh, I learned a ton. And uh, here's the thing, I I, I can pull off most of that responsibility, but on one of the days, it was crazy hair day. And so I thought, I got this thing. And so I grabbed a bunch of gel and I threw my hair straight up and I tried to get it in like a mohawk and I show up for crazy hair day and my son goes, dad, your hair just looks like it does every other day. So apparently, crazy hair's where I live, uh, and uh, gotta do something a little different. Anyway, um, what I wanna do is I want us to jump in. We're gonna, we're gonna start today talking about a story of transformation. You notice the title of the message is Saul to Paul. And we're gonna talk about this idea of metamorphosis. And I want you to understand that the human heart deeply resonates with this topic. That as of, as just all of us, humans, it's wired in us that, that we love this idea of transformation. It's why we draw, we're drawn to shows like Extreme Home Makeover or Biggest Loser, because it's like, was this, now is this. Or fairy tales like Cinderella moving from a handmaiden to a princess. Or even what underlies a lot of our comic book, you know, genre stories like, Uh, Captain America, for example, where Steve Rogers, you know, he's transformed. Now his physique and his strength physically match the strength of his character. It's a transformation. And we're just drawn to stories like that. Advertisers know this. That's why they don't just want to sell you a car that transports you from point A to point B. They want to sell you a car that transforms you into a person who makes this much money or who has this image or who scores these kind of dates or whatever it is. 
They're not just trying to sell you a soda, right? Don't just drink this soda. They want to transform you into the kind of person who has this kind of a social network, right? They're trying to sell you an image, a transformation. They're, they're, they're pitching that and not the fact that that soda transforms your teeth into cavities, right? Like they don't ever talk about that. So, so that's kind of what's going on here, the transformation. And when you read the book of Acts, you will see many stories of transformation throughout. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. None, though, as dynamic as the transformation from Saul into Paul. Now, Saul, let me just give you a quick background. If, you, if you're not familiar, Saul was a Pharisee. He was a follower of God in the Jewish tradition. He was a great Pharisee, he called himself a Pharisee among Pharisees, uh, that, that he was just expert in Jewish law keeping. He was passionate to keep the Jewish traditions pure, and he was so passionate that this new Christian movement, it bugged him completely. And so he was trying to destroy the first century church. And he was literally, he was hounding Christians. And he had just, you know, in the chapters previously, he had just given his approval to a Christian being stoned to death. He saw that guy killed, executed, and he wanted more of it. That's where we pick this up. We're in Acts chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Poor Saul. It's so amazing that he thought he was doing God's will. In fact, he was certain that he was exactly where God wanted him to be as he hunted down Jesus' followers to kill them. And he was 100% wrong. He was certain that he was right, and he was exactly wrong. Now, the reason why I bring this up, this is the starting place for us, and then we just receive it in humility. The truth is that all of us somewhere are certain that we're right and we're wrong. Every one of us, like at some point, we, we are, oh, oh, I, I might be unsure about these things, but on this issue, I am certain, and God's going, are you? And, and that's where Saul is in this thing, and, and, and so let me just give you a couple examples. Are there people today who are certain they're doing God's will, but they're actually doing the opposite? How about ISIS? They think they're doing God's will. Are they? No. That's a pretty extreme example, Pastor. What about within Christianity? How about Westboro Baptist? They show up at a funeral of a fallen soldier and picket with signs that say the most vile and hateful things imaginable, and they think they're doing God's will, but they're not. How about less extreme examples, Pastor? It'd be nice if we had a little less extreme. All right, so how about this? In every church, in Overlake, no, no, no different, we have followers of Jesus on every side of every issue. 
There are some that are absolutely certain that where they are to stand and where they are to fight is a place of keeping God's way pure. And so they fight for holiness and they fight for law. They fight for the good old fashioned religion that they grew up with and they're certain they're doing God's will. And then on the other side of the equation, we have Christians that are certain that they are supposed to fight for grace and freedom in Christ. And they are certain they're supposed to fight for that. And, and don't give me any of the law. Don't give me any of the restrictions of the law. Don't give me any of the I have to, I should, I need to, commandments. No, we fight for freedom. And guess what? When you're willing to pick up a rock and throw it at the other side, then you're exactly where Saul was. Because love is what's important. And so if, if we hunker down in our certainty and we begin to do murder in the name of God because we are certain that we are in God's will, that's exactly where we're missing the point. Okay, and, and I want you to think sort of about historical examples, okay? Just in our history as Christians, we have had, we have had Christians convinced that it was God's will for us to perpetuate the ownership of other human beings in the form of slavery. And they use the scripture not only to justify, but to mandate that they pick up arms and fight for the right to continue to own slaves. And then you had Christians on the other side, like Wilberforce, who were convinced of the opposite, that it was God's will for them to abolish slavery and there was bloodshed. Are you tracking with me? Or how about uh, in Bonhoeffer's days during World War II, you had Christians in Germany convinced that the, the place that God wanted them was to be subservient to an incredibly immoral and murderous government. And then you had other Christians like Bonhoeffer who became convinced that it was time to take up arms against that oppressure and to be a voice for the voiceless. And like I said, we have Christians at Overlake who are on every side of every issue. And the truth is you are where you are because you're convinced that that's where God wants you to be. And so this is the point and, and maybe the most important point I, I've maybe ever preached. So you should write this down because if, you know, if you don't get that one, really, I'm wasting my time. So here it is. When we get to heaven we will all see every place we were wrong. Every one of us, at some point in our lives, we've got bad theology or a mistaken theology, and Jesus will be there gently revealing our error. And I have a theory, just a theory, not in the Bible, but it's a theory that I think the preachers are going to go into heaven first and have that little sit down with Jesus. And I think he's just gonna take a little time. He's gonna, look, you were the mouthpiece of God. You, you stood and wagged a finger at a congregation and you said, God says this and God wills this and God wants this and I didn't want any of that. You know, that was just an earthquake. It wasn't punishment for sin or whatever it is, right? And the pastors, are, we're going to be crushed. We're going to be absolutely devastated. And that time, I imagine it's going to take a long time for Jesus to sort of sort us out. And then he's going to invite the rest of us in. And he's going to talk to you about your Facebook posts. 
and there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth in that moment. And we're all gonna cry real tears of repentance. We're all gonna be humbled in that moment. How could we consistently miss God's heart so completely the way we consistently missed God's heart? And we're just gonna be crushed and Jesus will be there and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes and he will tell us there'll be no more sorrow and no more crying, no more pain because in heaven there is no social media. Yeah. And in heaven, there will be no misunderstanding God's heart because we'll be in perfect communion with God. And there'll never be believers on different sides of the same issue wanting to do murder in the name of God because we will be together as one with the Lord. It'll be beautiful, beautiful. I can't wait for that day. But understand, we're not in that day yet. And so there's a little humility required among God's people. And if you're filling in the blanks, it's this. How certain am I that my certainty is helping God's kingdom? How certain am I? Is your certainty bringing anybody into the kingdom of God? Is your certainty communicating the love and grace of Jesus Christ? Is your certainty giving Jesus a good reputation or a bad reputation? How certain am I that my certainty is helping God's kingdom? At Overlake, if you go through our Rooted 101 class, that's the pathway to dynamic membership here at Overlake, you will find that what we believe is that in the essentials, we believe in unity. But in the non-essentials, in which there are many, we believe in liberty. And in all things, we believe in love. Because if we can't express love, then we're missing the whole point. And so I would even pitch, if you want a better word or a more helpful word than the word certainty, I would pitch that we begin to use the word confidence. Confidence. It's just, in my mind, it's a little more helpful because certainty leaves no room for humility on behalf of the person who is certain. But confidence does. And so as a pastor, I would say to you that I am confident that my take on scriptures is good and healthy. I'm confident that the narrative I preach, that God's love is for every human being, that Jesus is God come in the flesh to offer salvation both eternally and to invite us into full life now. I'm confident of these things, but in humility, I'm also able to have a conversation and to be in relationship with those who don't see things perhaps the way that I see them. And in humility, perhaps we might both learn a little bit from one another and learn, we might learn to care for people who believe or see things differently than we do. And if I am humble in that relationship, well then I might plant a seed. But if I'm just certain that I'm right and you're wrong, then that makes relationships really, really hard. And that makes love really, really hard. And since love is the thing that matters, I'm pitching confidence over certainty. Can I get an amen for that? Can I, can, are we together in this? Well, should we just close in prayer? No, sorry, I got way too much to do here. Okay, so let's go back to Saul, who is breathing out murderous threats of the, for the Jesus followers. He wants to kill them. He's certain that he's doing God's will in this. And this is what it says. It says, so he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. The way, by the way, that's the, the Christian movement, the people following Jesus. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. 
As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Okay, so interesting about this. Saul is actually on the road to persecute Christians. There's not a whole lot of places to be further from being a Christian than on the road to persecuting more of them. And yet he is on that road as far as you possibly can be from following Jesus when Jesus meets him and he becomes a follower of Jesus. Are you following me in this? Some of you right now in your lives, you can think of a person immediately who you think is so far from following Jesus. It, it, maybe it's the, the guy in the office who's always telling jokes and Jesus or fo Jesus followers, they're, they're the butt end of the joke. Or, or maybe it's the outspoken atheist in your friendship circle, the one who just mocks this whole kind of enterprise. <clears throat> maybe for you, it's just a, a person that's just so kind of vile and base, a friend, you've grown up with this guy and, and all of his jokes are so lewd and crude and you're thinking, there's no way. There's no way this guy's ever interested in, in following Jesus. I just want you to picture their face for a moment in your mind. And I want you to remember that if Jesus can meet Saul on the road to killing Christians and turn him into a Jesus follower, then Jesus can do wonders in this life that you're thinking of. Th think about him right now. Think, th picture him. We're going to pray for him, okay? Let, let's just lift him up. Lord Jesus. You see right down into our hearts. You know everything we're thinking about. You know what's going on right now. And you see in our minds the face of the people that we think are farthest from you. Jesus, you laugh at that notion. We know you can meet them right now. We know that you love them right now. We know that you want them to be following you. And so we ask right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would touch their lives, that you would bless their lives, and that you would transform their lives in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. See, aren't you glad you came to church today? This has been a good day. We covered a lot of stuff here. Okay. Here's the next fill-in. Restored sight grants entirely new vision. Restored sight grants entirely new vision. It, it's funny to me that Saul gets blinded on his road. He gets blinded on his road so that he cannot see the way ahead. He cannot see the pathway forward. He can't even see his hand in front of his face. Friends, Jesus had to blind Saul of his certainty. He had to make sure that Saul knew that the pathway that he was on, that he was completely blinded to so that Jesus could give him new sight and show him a new pathway. And the reason why it's funny to me is because Jesus talks about this with the Pharisees while he's alive during his earthly ministry. I'm sure the story got around amongst the Pharisees. And now here's Paul, a Pharisee, the Pharisees, being blinded and then giving new vision by Jesus. But what Jesus says to the Pharisees is this, look, I can heal a blind guy like this. 
I, I can, in fact, read through the gospels and you'll see how many blind guys that Jesus heals. It's not a problem for Jesus to give a blind guy sight. You know what's a problem? For Jesus to give a guy who thinks he sees perfectly sight. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you think you see perfectly, but you're blind. I wish you were blind. Because if you're blind, I could heal you. But since you think you see, I can't do a thing with you. Look what the scripture says. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, Jesus had to blind Saul of his certainty that killing Christians was God's desire so that he could be made to see, have this new sight that, that he could understand, no, God actually loves everybody. When Jesus died in order to save and forgive sins, starting with yours, Saul, but this is for everyone, not just for the Jewish faithful, it's for the entire world. Now, the subpoint under this is that Saul, because of this transformation that happens and how it happens, Saul is under no illusions that he is the one who caused it. Do you, do you see what I mean? If Saul was already starting to turn towards Jesus, if he was a seeker, let me explore the claims of Jesus. Like maybe then Saul could take credit for this. But because Saul was on the road to killing Christians and Jesus turned him around, now Saul understands Jesus is the one who started this thing. He's the one who invited me into this faith journey. He's the one who initiated me on this road. Jesus is gonna be the one who finishes it as well. In fact, I wanna say that nobody else in all of history would identify with these scripture like Saul did. Philippians 1.6, I am certain that God, maybe a better word, confident, well, who, who cares? So I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God, who began a good work, who began the good work? God will finish the work when, when Christ Jesus returns, right? Saul would have understood that perfectly because he knew he was not doing the good work. It was Jesus who initiated it. Or how about this next verse from Hebrews 12? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the one who began to write it. Jesus is the one who's gonna finish it, right? And Paul understood that. I think sometimes we end up taking some credit for who we are. We end, up, we end up taking some accolade or glory on ourselves like, Jesus, you are lucky to have me, you know? <laughs> but Saul understood, right? He understood, no, it was Jesus who tagged me. It was Jesus who tapped me on the shoulder. Jesus said, I want you. I didn't have anything to do with it, right? And so we have to keep that in mind, regardless of the way our story unfolded. So... Saul was so far from being a follower of Jesus, it took Jesus himself to, to bring Saul on the right direction. And, and Jesus was the one who searched him out, tagged him. Jesus was the one. And so since Saul knew that Jesus was the one who started this thing, he knew that Jesus would be the one to finish it. So now Saul is blind, and now Saul believes. And then we come to the next step in the transformation process. This is in verse 10. It says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. 
I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Now, this is so interesting to me. And I think it's an example of Bible humor, if you will. Because, so first Jesus tags Saul. You're gonna be my guy. Then he tags Ananias. You need to go meet Saul. And Ananias, this is this moment when the follower of Jesus has an argument with Jesus. Are you tracking? And so Ananias is like, hey, Lord, what's up? And, and Jesus shows up, hey, Ananias, I want you to go meet Saul, lay hands on him, pray for him. I've shown him a vision that you're going to come. Ananias says, wait, wait, says, uh, Jesus, I think I have some information that you may not have. <laughs> this is Saul, and he has been killing it. In a bad way. He's been destroying your movement. He's been killing your followers. He's actually in town to do more of that stuff. Like he's, he's looking to kill. And did you say you gave him a picture of me? <laughs> right? We, we think we want to inform Jesus. Jesus, maybe you don't know the whole picture. Maybe you don't know what I'm facing. Maybe you don't know all of the circumstances. Friends, we have to understand Jesus knows. Jesus has a plan. He sees it all. We might think it's crazy. We might think he's calling us into hard things. But he knows, and he has a plan for us. And so it's so good to see that, okay, even followers of Jesus have these moments with Jesus. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's an interesting line, isn't it? Followers of Jesus, I want you to understand that it, we're never pro promised that there won't be suffering on the road. Right? So we just have to recognize that doesn't mean we're not doing well. It doesn't mean we're not following Jesus. There's going to be suffering here. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Brings us to the next point, which is this. Believers are called to believe in other believers. Believers are called to believe in believers, that this is the pattern. It's, it's the, the plan that Jesus has for his family and for his church, is that those who are in the faith, those who are following Jesus, would be willing to pour out and encourage and bless and build up other believers who might be younger in their faith journey. I remember when I was just in college, I worked for a, a summer under a guy named Sonny Salisbury. And Sonny was a great follower of Jesus, just a great saint in God's church. And, and he saw in me things I didn't see in myself. And he believed in potential that I did not believe in. And, and he was just a great encourager of me. He modeled what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus. And, and then he encouraged me and built me up along my road. So it begs a question, right? It begs a question, um, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, who are you pouring into? Who are you mentoring? Who are you building up? Who are you encouraging? 
What does, what does the ministry look like that's flowing out of your life? Because believers are called to believe in other believers. And if you're a young believer, if you're a young follower of Jesus, who are you tagging who's been on the journey? And who are you saying, hey, would you mentor me? I see your life. I see the way you live. I see the choices you make. I, I would love to learn from you and grow in my faith with you. A picture of this at Overlake was... Pastor Neely in our student ministries, and she was working with our student leaders. These are leaders in our student ministries, and, and they've made some commitments to the Lord, and they've taken steps forward in leadership. And so Pastor Neely was especially mentoring one of the gals in student leadership named Sophia. And so she's pouring into Sophia and encouraging Sophia. At the same time, Sophia is leading a group of junior high girls and there's a girl in, in that group, Alexandra, my daughter, who's being mentored by Sophia and, and receiving the encouragement, being built up in the faith by Sophia, being built up by Neely. And then Alexandra, in turn, is leading a small group of first graders and pouring into them at the time and, and building them up and leading them in the Lord. And so I want you to see that picture of Neely pouring into Sophia, pouring into Alexandra, pouring into the first grade girls. That, that's how God's family is to work. The believers are to pour into other believers. Believers are, are to believe in other believers and encourage other believers. And, and if you're not pouring out, if, you're, if, you, if you don't have that, that sort of that outflow of your ministry and encouragement life, then I want you to have a mental picture. I, I, I want you to think of the Dead Sea. I know we're familiar with the Dead Sea. We understand what the Dead Sea is. It's this body of water. It's lower than sea level, by the way. It's sunken into the earth. It's right there in the middle of Israel there. And it's just such an interesting body of water because the water flows in from the Jordan River, from the Sea of Galilee. It flows down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea. But there is no outflow. And so because of that, the Dead Sea is highly salinated. I don't even know if that's the right word. Got a lot of salt, okay? And it's so much salt in there that it's, no fish can live in there. You can't even really drive boats for very long because it's so corrosive. It'll corrode the bottom of the boat. Um, you can't do baptisms in the Dead Sea because you just float. Everything, everybody floats in the Dead Sea. You just stay right on the surface. You try to baptize and like legs are popping up and you're trying to get, you just can't do it. And it's so salty that if you go in the Dead Sea, if you got a little cut or something, you, ooh, I got a cut. You know, you're, you float in the Dead Sea. Apparently, I have a hemorrhoid. You know, ooh. Uh. That is a true story. No. But friends, the, the reason the Dead Sea is dead is because it just takes in and it doesn't give out. It just receives, but it doesn't give. And there are some Christians who live their lives like that. It's all about what you're consuming. It's all about you getting fed. I got to get my needs met. I got to hear from this pastor. I got to hear from this book. I got to do this devotional. I'm in this Bible study. It's all about me receiving, but then there's no turning and there's no giving. There's nobody alongside that you're encouraging and bringing along with you, building up, believing in. And so the challenge, friends, is that believers believe in other believers. Question, who might that be in your life? Who, who might God be calling you to invest in? 
I am totally convinced today that there are people at church who are called to respond like Saul, that there are places in your life that need radical transformation. There are certainties in your life that you need to humbly offer to Jesus, right? There are things right now that he wants to blind you to so that he can give you completely new sight. But then there are other people at Overlake today who God's calling to respond like Ananias, that right now he's bringing a, a person in your mind or a ministry in your mind, and he's saying, go, for I am sending you. Brings us to this next point. We'll read the scripture, verse 20. It says, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is indeed the son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked, and didn't he come here to arrest them and to take them in chains to the leading priests? Last point here, transformation produces evidence. Transformation produces evidence. It leaves clues. There'll be, there'll be evidence that there's been some sort of change that's taken place. It'll be visible. It'll be recognizable. Captain America now has muscles. Cinderella now has a prince. Biggest Loser now has a healthy body. And it brings us to this point we've talked about before. We'll cover it again. You might want to write it down. Change without change is not change. Okay, change without change isn't change. And so transformation will have fruit. It will have evidence. You could just imagine Paul. He's chomping at the bit. He can't wait to get going. You know, as soon as they let him out of the house, he's going to the synagogue and he's going, I used to kill Christians three days ago, but now I follow Jesus. And they're like, I am amazed. I'm terrified, but I'm amazed, you know. And there, there, there's this transformation evidence that everyone can see. And so this is true spiritually for us, that, that transformation produces fruit. The fruit in Saul's life was that as much fervor and passion as he was going about persecuting the church and destroying the movement of Jesus, now he puts that same passion and energy into building up the church and preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the evidence is easy to see, and everyone is amazed by it. I also think it's very interesting to me that he chose a new name, Paul. Now, the name Saul, if you want to know this, Saul means prayed for. And the way that I imagine that Saul interpreted the meaning of his own name is, I am the answer to your prayers, Right? So he would show up, I am the mighty Pharisee Saul. I am the one who is certain of God's plan, not only for my life, but for yours. And I am here as the answer to your prayers. I'm Saul. And then he changes his name to Paul. Paul, by the way, means little, humble, or modest. Little, humble, or modest. So he might have been short. What I think rather is that he chose the name Paul because now he is humble. And now he knows that he is not the answer to prayer. Jesus is. Now he knows that he is not certain of anything, but he is confident in Jesus. 
And so that is what he makes his whole life mission. That's what he makes his whole life message. He's not about pointing people to Saul. He is, or yeah, pointing people to Saul. He is now pointing people to Jesus. His name's Paul. I got a little confused. Sorry. And I just want you to see that there is this evidence of transformation. And in your life, there will be evidence as well. Would you think about your life for a moment? What might the evidence of God at work in you look like? Maybe it's the transformation of how you treat people. In your relationships, people know that something's different because they sense the Holy Spirit and his love through you. They sense the peace in you and the way that you interact in stressful circumstances. Your family, I hope, experiences God's joy through you. That's evidence. And that's God at work in you. For some of you, it will be this, this move of generosity. Up until, you know, this season in your life and Jesus invades, it's all been about what you can get, what you can, you know, accumulate, how, how much you can take in. But now because of Jesus, there's this new generosity, generosity of resource, generosity of spirit, generosity of ministry, where you are ready to give back and you do want it to flow out of you so that others can be blessed. Maybe there's a new interest level in you. You're, you're, you're interested in things you've never been interested in before. You're, how can we combat injustice? How can we get involved in these issues where people are suffering under this oppression? I think God's church can make a difference here. And so you become involved. What does the evidence look like in your life? And as you read through the book of Acts, what you'll find is you will find that Paul shares his testimony at least three times in in entirety. That he, he, he tells the story of his radical conversion by Jesus meeting him on the road, blinding him. He tells this story again and again. And we've talked over Lake at the beginning of this year about your story and the story that God has met you on, the pathway of faith that you have been journeying on and how God wants to use your story to impact someone else's life. Friends, just sharing your story is a great way to show that there's evidence of transformation in you, okay? So I'm gonna wrap it up right now, and I do just wanna wrap it up by pointing our attention to these two things. Maybe today God's calling you to be transformed like Saul, that there are places of certainty, there are places of blindness, that, that Jesus just wants to totally renovate and transform. Or maybe today it's more like Ananias, where you've been receiving for a while, you've been growing for a while, it's been about you enjoying the inflow of God and God's spirit and and good instruction into your life, and now it's time for you to begin to give, okay? So why don't we just ask him? Let's let God speak to us, and let's let him be the one who calls us into this next season. Lord Jesus, we love you. We believe that you are so grace-filled that you meet all of us. You're grace-filled in our certainty where we're absolutely certain we're right and you know we're wrong and we know there's grace even over that reality. We're certain there's grace even though uh, we might be on a road completely the opposite, like like Saul was. We know that there's grace that you would meet us even in that moment of our our wrong-headedness and you would put us on the right path. So right now, Jesus, in your grace, we ask that you would meet us. You would allow us to be humble, that if there are places in our lives that we need to lay down, if there are certainties in our lives we need to just submit, surrender to you, we just ask that you would 
Let us do that now in your name. And then, Lord, if, if there are those of us here who, like Ananias, you want us to begin to pour out. You want us to begin to, to give back. You want us to begin to bring others alongside and to journey with others so that we might encourage and support and build up. Lord, would you show us what that looks like? Show us the ministry to get plugged into or show us the person that we need to just um, contact and, and begin to build a friendship where we might encourage them. We love you, Jesus. We want to thank you for how you meet us in our need. We want to thank you that none of us are too far gone. We want to thank you for the way in which you love each and every one of us. And so we just say thanks. Pray it all in your name. Amen.